It's This Week in Sleeves with your host, the great lord, Joshua Riegel and Sleazy K. This podcast has been rated Category 3. No one under 18 may be permitted. Let's talk some fucking kidnapping. True life Hong Kong crime on film is a staple of the category free film, but often in a more grisly manner. You know, serial killers, rapists, uh, cannibalism, that sort of thing. But crime does come in different forms. And in this episode, we take a look at the kidnapping case of businessman Teddy Wang. A story adapted into a Jackie Chan film, but also into a cheapo Wong Jing written film. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look, look at not crime story, but kidnap of Wong Chuck Fei from 1993. And my name is Lisa K. And with me is the great Lord Joshua Riggle. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, yeah. True life crime. True life crime. Kidnapping. Oh, yeah. It's a story for the ages, an exciting story. But uh, if it leads to uh, an exciting uh, time at the movies, uh, kidnap of uh, Wong Chuck Fei will certainly find that uh, out. Because uh, uh, there, there is a lot to speak of before we, uh, the whole movie review shenanigans. Uh, Teddy Wang's uh, case is uh, quite, quite well documented. Uh, and as are most of the notable True life uh, crime films. Uh, the Dr. Lam case, obviously very well documented. Uh, uh, the serial uh, killer Lam Kowan and uh, the untold story, uh, you know, the, uh, the the murderer over at the Eight Immortals restaurant, very, very well documented. The rapist, obviously, the, the Tunman rapist. I, I did some uh, additional, we, we, we've talked about that film, The Rapist, many, many years ago. Uh, and, and I did some research recently just to re familiarize myself with that. Uh, case for another thing for another project uh, i just wanted to have a paragraph of uh, what uh, went on with the tunman rapist who, who also murdered uh, some of his victims so he, he's a serial killer maybe these details came up in our research many years ago i don't remember now but um, that area at that time was so poor and infested with drugs and crime that uh, that stat, you know, the first rape, the second rape, didn't really create any uh, indication of that something is going on here, beyond what is normally going on. And even when uh, one or two of the bodies uh, turned up in, like, stairwells or even uh, outside of apartment complexes, they weren't immediately reported. People essentially stepped over bodies and didn't wow. and didn't want to have anything to do with it you know uh, no one immediately called the police until a, a, a few more victims into that horrible like uh, rapist spree then uh, the public organized some demonstrations and uh, and, and the tournament rapist was uh, caught and convicted as well but that was a really grisly detail that uh, I, I mean I, I can't imagine because it's I've never lived that life Th- that that could be a daily occurrence that uh, there's a body never mind it just go we'll go yeah, on with our lives just, so just keep walking yeah uh, so um and uh, ironically and uh, not not ironically but uh, for, for something that was made so quickly and actually uh, not too maybe mid case or just shortly after the case was sort of documented uh, the rape is that film is one of the one of the better ones actually it's one of the more well-reviewed ones it's not terribly well seen like dr lamb is uh, for a film that uh, could have been just nasty and cheap and uh, with no redeeming value it's it's effective for about you know doing what it does that's uh that's a little uh, 
detour into that and I'll link to the old episode there. But uh, let's uh, get going. We have a lot of things to talk about. So for all your podcast on Fire Network needs, including the back catalog of uh, this weekend's lease, go to our website and uh, check out our uh, socials. Uh, it's podcastonfire.com. We're on Facebook. We have our discussion group. Our Twitter handle is at podcastonfire. We're on Instagram at podcastonfire. And uh, I tweet about that. So good reviews. And you can find us uh, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. Uh, Joshua has a little uh, YouTube channel with uh, a few uh, different documentaries, including on Hong Kong stunts, on IFD films and arts. And uh, he, at the time of recording, uh, you were contacted by one of the very, 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 very minor players in IFD films that's that found your video. So yeah, the, the circle and the loop is sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, connected now. <laughs> yeah, it was not Richard Harrison. So, no, like, it like, wasn't, unfortunately. Like, like, the fuck is this? <laughs> signed Richard Harrison <laughs> it, it, it was a minor play I did not recognize it was in a couple of IFD films but still uh, he uh, he took the time to comment on your video complimented you and your research skills and uh, and as many say except Richard Harrison they, they sort of say it was good fun it was, it was an experience I'll remember most didn't have the recognition that uh, Harrison did you know so he his experience was slightly different but uh, I mean he got to go out Put on some pajamas and kind of had fun with friends and stuff like that and made a little money at the same time yeah, and name people within these films like the films yeah. like mike abbott they are they do remember it fondly and they realized exactly what was happening and uh, what they did and uh, and they don't mind uh, talking about it uh, either so uh, there, there is a uh, different uh, sides and different perspectives i mean richard went from kind of a name in european films to uh a laughing stock after the Godfrey Ho films came out, and I mean, it, it is what it is. They they kind of screwed with him in terms of the footage they shot with him, but um, he uh, he had he had a good thing going for for a number of years. You know, you listen to that interview with him where he, he talks about and he calls Godfrey essentially a prostitute and all that. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of that's in his own head too. You know, he got screwed over on you know the money and everything like that, and he just. I'm sure in his head it did, you know, so much damage. But the reality of, of it was, you know, you're already shooting, you know, these low-budget films uh, throughout, you know, Asia. So, I mean, you know, how, how great was your career really at that point anyway? That's no disrespect to him. He's a great actor and he's been in some awesome stuff. But he, he I, I did read uh, because I filled out my uh, IFD uh, research a little bit more than I had before that he was uh, paid monthly even if he wasn't working necessarily monthly when he was in Hong Kong so money was coming in but uh, his point is probably that well the the Garfield phone footage is in several movies so when am I getting uh, extra yeah. pay Where's for my that? residuals for all of that yeah I mean totally yeah he, he definitely got scammed on it but like you know, as far as like that being the thing that's you know stops him from being in friggin' Top Gun or something like that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. My friend called Richard. Richard, how could you do this to me? I said, "What? I bought all these movies because your name was on them." <laughs> that's a great uh, interview. So awesome. It uh, sort of came back uh, to him like, uh, "What is this? <laughs> Why are you in this?" <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, running up hill, running up hills, and like screaming, "Ninja! Ninja!" 
beautiful context. But but yeah, he uh, he he Joshua that is uh, so a documentary on IFT films and arts, and it's good to have it uh, confirmed that uh, he did his research. So uh, go check it out on his YouTube channel called Weird Cinema. That's uh, all there is to it for now. We're gonna take a music break, and then we'll be back to chat about. And quite do quite extensive notes on the kidnapping uh, case, and and actually there are multiple cases of uh, the kidnapping of uh, businessman Teddy Wang, and we're gonna talk about that, and uh, we'll do that after the music break. Welcome back. In this episode, we'll cover one movie, but we got a quite um, quite a hefty background section. The movie is Kidnap of Wong Chak Fai. And I actually won't do a plot from the film because as we will be discussing the real life case and how they mirror it in the film or not mirror it and in the film, as it were, I think the plot of the film will be sufficiently told throughout the discussion. Perhaps we'll spoil a few things because obviously we're gonna, this kidnapping case is, is concluded. It's not open-ended or anything, so um, if you really want to go in spoiler-free, if you have sought out Wong Chuck Fake, God bless you, uh, <laughs> then uh, we, you know, we will spoil it because we're going to talk of the real case. So, so we're in true crime mode here. As a lot of category-free films in the nineties, they they covered true life crimes because it's a, it's a way to grab attention. You know, grab what's in the news, grab stuff for from the news headlines and make a script out of a loose idea or make a pretty full-on adaptation of a documented crime that was then supported by the category 3 rating so it means it's kind of extreme and graphic and all of that so you you had the notable movies like Dr. Lamb, The Rapist, The Untold Story leading that pack in terms of name recognition and documented crimes and uh, but but high profile films at the time that did uh, cover true life crime, but uh, they, they they all they, they didn't all go into the category three rating just because because if you were a high profile film, so you had some other commercial interests, I think, and you'd want to have more people in a cinema to experience your true life crime. And one such true life crime film was Kirk Wong's film Crime Story. And indeed, that starred Jackie Chan. It was released on June 24th, 1993. It earned 27 million Hong Kong dollars, which was good enough to be the seventh most profitable local film that year. It also earned technical and acting awards. For instance, Jackie Chan won a Taiwanese Golden Horse Award for his performance. It's a serious film performance and not uh, this, uh, uh, I'm the goofy cop uh, who uses props in every scene and shit like that. So, um uh, the movie also starred Ken Cheng in a memorable, in a memorable villainous turn. Then, you know, they, they, this was June uh, 24th. Uh, that movie ran for a little while and uh, had momentum. And then on August 20th of that year, 1993. Two f- months later. Two months later. The fictionalized account of the same crime, the kidnapping of businessman Teddy Wang, 
in the form of Kidnap of Wong Chak Fai was also released to decidedly less than stellar box office returns, 3 million, but it had a Wong Jing co-penned script and a category 3 rating. So so yeah, it uh, might just be more more graphic and more sleazier and uh, extensively more gross than Crime Story, who knows. But we circled back to the fact that during that summer, one big, one small film was released, uh, they were released, both told and referenced the true and quite sad story of the kidnapping of businessman Teddy Wang. And uh, we, we spoke of it all there, your sort of musings as, as a Hong Kong cinema fan, both on the inside and outside, how mad this appears that two, two films, two months apart, of different budgets and different intentions. With the same actor. Yeah. <laughs> both uh, in both movies, the same actor plays the same guy who basically is the mastermind behind the kidnapping. Exactly. It's it's not the same character, but it is that uh, they lean on the corrupt side of Ken Cheng's character as mm-hmm. the crime story. One has evil Kent Cheng kidnapping, and one has her slightly heroic Kent Cheng kidnapping an evil businessman. You know, it's like, but both films feature him essentially playing the same chess piece. You know. And I was telling you, and uh, we were talking previously. I says it's like if when Rocky Four came out, Stallone, you know, put out Big Rocky Four, you know, and then come back, you know, three months later, and he films like a low budget movie about uh, a boxer who goes to Russia to fight this giant Russian who killed his uh, mentor and rival in the ring, and you know, essentially mirrors the same plot. It's like kind of insane you know it doesn't make sense why would you do that it's, it's wild and hong kong has done that uh, before because it, when we flash forward to either 2000 and 2001 there were two yeah. movies released called human pork chop and there is a secret <laughs> in my soup my soup yeah the latter stars michael wong but uh, and it was a pretty bad movie the former was a pretty great movie a gross movie and both based on the hello kitty murders where this uh, group of uh, triads uh, murdered this uh, prostitute that owed them not a whole lot of money but they they certainly did uh, kidnap her tortured her eventually uh, murdered her and cut up her uh, dismembered her and one of her body parts her head i believe it ended up in a hello kitty doll so it became the hello kitty murders those movies apparently came out on the same fucking day <laughs> so you know, it's not unusual to have like, you know, multiple films about the same traumatic thing, like same serial killer or what have you. It's bizarre to have them in this on the same day or the same year featuring the same cast members, one from a big budget movie that wins awards, one uh, you know, a movie where a guy answers a phone while getting a blowjob, you know, or answers a banana as a phone while getting a blowjob. Uh, yeah, but it show, shows that uh, noted character actor Kent Cheng, you know, Butcher Wing from Once Upon a Time in China, yeah. did not say no to work. So, uh, so there it is. But two Teddy Wang films uh, featuring Kent Cheng. So who was uh, Teddy Wang and uh, who was Nina Wang? We're going to paint you that picture. So uh, these two, these two central characters, uh, both now deceased, uh, 
you know, they, they were childhood uh, sweethearts, uh, Nina Wang and uh, Teddy Wang. And uh, uh, he was the founder of uh, China Chem Group, who originally sold chemical fertilizer. And over the years, uh, they, they diversified that company and went into property development, which became sort of the main business by the 1980s for China Chem. And their, their rep was to build quickly and build cheaply. And the movies are not afraid to paint uh, Teddy in a bad light. The evening crime story where he's played by Law Guying. You know, he's pretty on front street there. He's uh, he's building cheaply and he's, he is cheap. But he's got the protection of the police in, in the case of crime story too. Yeah, and crime story. Like the scene before he gets kidnapped, like Jackie Chan's walking with like, uh, you know, all the people that he owes money to or whatever, all the, you know, workers who, that he screws over. And uh, they're just like, uh, I forget what his name is in that film, but like, you know. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they both have different. Um, yeah, they don't call him. Uh, yeah, he's called Teddy, Te- Wang. Uh, Teddy in these films. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's just say Teddy Wang. I'm like, yeah, Teddy Wang, he's known for being an asshole. It's like, shit. This guy's dead, and here we are. Okay. So, as uh, journalist Stephen Vines has said, uh, you can't think their properties as being think of their properties as being nicely made. You know, materials made to build these apartments uh, and houses they were cheap and subpar. And it's also said that the couple Teddy and Nina they, they weren't known to spend all their earnings either, nor lived an extravagant lifestyle. But uh, still, they, um, they they were they were apparently um, going about this uh, cheap. You know. Uh, they they lived to develop their business, but still kept this standard, and uh, they put money in the company, but still maintained this standard. Frugal or reluctant to spend the uh, way you when you rationally should, you know they they made their choice uh, somewhere along the line. They didn't even hire a personal driver. Speaking of uh, you know not living an extravagant uh, lifestyle, and Teddy personally drove him and Nina everywhere. This is sort of a key to the whole story as well. So as known as they were, uh, this odd behavior of sort of being reserved could classify them as a low profile wealthy couple as well and not a whole you know there was not a whole great you know cauldron of knowledge about their life about their personal history they kept to themselves they didn't necessarily go to social functions uh, but despite all of that enough information could be obtained about the couple daily routines and in 1983 a carefully planned kidnapping took place, and this is not the crime story depicted kidnap or the kidnap of Wong Chuck Fei depicted kidnap. This is the first. He was kidnapped twice. So in 19, uh, 1983, while driving to work together in uh, Central in Hong Kong, they ran into a roadblock. And this was orchestrated by the kidnappers who had clearly studied their victims' uh, driving routines and uh, routes. And uh, so the abduction uh, took place at uh, at the roadblock while uh, of Teddy, while Nina was forced to lie in the back of a car uh, with, with a pair of uh, blacked-out sunglasses on. And Teddy Wang was taken into a van. He was put into a metal box and driven away. Teddy later described to the police it felt like being in a, refrig- in a refrigerator. The road where this happened was desolate, and during the few minutes the operation lasted, there were no witnesses. Uh, uh, so there was clearly some thought behind this kidnapping because... Uh, they were driving around uh, in a van in, in daylight, you know, and they were moving a metal box that looked like a fridge, but they knew the kidnappers that this wouldn't arouse suspicion necessarily. So they recorded Teddy's voice on a tape recorder. They took a Polaroid photo of him. So the kidnappers had now prepared what was needed to make their demands. Um, 
so if we cut back to Nina and her part in this, uh, in, in, the, in the darkened sunglasses uh, the, uh, as she had them on, the kidnappers said she needed to cooperate, otherwise Teddy would be killed. And uh, they'd both be killed if the police would be uh, notified. Uh, they dropped her off unharmed though, and they took off in, um, in, in Teddy's um, car. Uh, she went to the China Chem office and contacted her lawyer though. And through a series of talks with a lawyer who spoke to another influential person and a couple of more persons, the police were contacted. It seems like they wanted to do it as low-key as possible rather than make a stink uh, and get it out uh, in the public and all of that. And uh, in the documentary that uh, we based many of these notes on, we see an interview with uh, Trevor Collins of the Hong Kong police who had just been assigned to the Organized and Serious Crime Bureau. And he got the ball rolling in terms of assigning units to investigate various locations, including the home and the offices of Teddy Wang, uh, because they needed to monitor it as well in case there were incoming calls. Uh, Nina was uh, contacted by the kidnappers uh, subsequently and asked to pick up a package at uh, a woman's bathroom at a specific location, which contained the recorded cassette tape. Teddy's Polaroid photo and a key to his Mercedes. The tape contained instructions to Nina telling her to open a bank account, how she, and like instructions in terms of how she would confirm to the kidnappers that it was opened and uh, that would take place by publishing an ad, a classified ad in a newspaper. And uh, the amount was also stated, stated the amount kidnappers were demanding for Teddy's release, which in 1983 was 11 million US dollars, which was at that time 75 million Hong Kong, which was a reckoned amount of ransom money in a kidnapping case such as this. And Nina tried to negotiate that down and uh, said that it would be hard for her to get this sum, but of money but at one point kidnappers did call her saying that we know that that sum is no problem for you obviously they were public figures and the company was public to the degree that you can sort of calculate that this is not and they were right they were right like the amount of money that teddy wang had uh, you know i believe the documentary at one point said like towards the billion range huh in the 80s exactly and they, they even said to her that uh, you know we demanded 11 uh, but you, we know you can get a lot more in reality so uh, th- this is our terms and uh, you gotta you gotta abide by that uh, a further package was uh, placed and picked up containing instructions of where to transfer the money uh, specifically to a bank in taiwan and against the advice of the police nina wang did pay the ransom uh, there was continual communication with her and the kidnappers uh, and police tried to track uh, uh, the location of where the call was placed. But we're talking 1983 and the technology, the tracing technology to track um, calls um, instantly, I suppose, or, or at all, made it quite uh, difficult. Maybe the technology was advanced elsewhere, but certainly not in in Hong Kong in 1983. So, so the police had to do, you know extensive work grunt work really they requested logs of every call placed from hong kong to taiwan in, a, in an attempt to trace but that meant dealing with logs of over 100,000 phone calls placed per day uh, the polaroid photo was also analyzed in order to try and determine teddy's location they looked at the air conditioner unit on the wall then going out to retailers who might have sold and installed these obviously good police work trying to uh, narrow things down there was also a mattress on the bed that he was sitting on that had a brand name on it so they went around retailers in the same vein all while nina wang had to deal with the fact that she upheld her end of the bargain but her husband had had not yet been released she uh, received phone calls daily 
but there was still no info about where Teddy would be dropped off. But finally it did happen. Teddy made a phone call saying he was released. He was put back, he was put back in the fridge and uh, driven around for a while and uh, then dropped off at the side of the road and he had been held for nine days at that point. So, I mean, there, there's a movie there about the first uh, kidnapping uh-huh. case, but uh, since uh, the, the greater dramatic beats, I suppose, take place in the second kidnapping, that's why movies focus on that. The police uh, were obviously not done. They wanted to find the persons uh, responsible for this, and they started to search public house estates in the area where Teddy was released. And Teddy could actually see through the blindfold a little bit. Uh, he had seen a sticker on the back window of the van that said, Jesus loves you. And the police got incredibly lucky because they found that van quite quickly. As so, like amongst all the white vans in Hong Kong. Hong Kong might not be, might not be big, but I'm sure they have an overabundance of white, uh, white vans. Yeah. And the person who was registered to the van was promptly arrested and confessed he was involved in the kidnapping. And a newspaper article in the documentary um, that we that we watched and will certainly link to it because it's an interesting watch. It also mentions that most of the ransom money was recovered and um, and the recipient uh, the the, uh, the account on the other end in Taiwan that was frozen. So Teddy Teddy was released and again we we, we got our movie right there. Well. We have our movies, but Crime Story and Kidnap of uh, Wong Chak Fei covers Teddy Wang's next kidnapping. Because in uh, April of 1990, uh, this went down again. And the, the known tycoon couple who did like to keep their uh, lives private were now very much known as their business empire grew. Uh, and the 1983 crime had been documented. So they could potentially be targets again, even if they didn't want to be... Um, public figures uh, 24-7 or anything. But uh, we're going to track back a little bit to their background. Uh, Teddy and Nina were both born in Shanghai in the 1930s. Uh, His father, Teddy Wang's father, was a businessman who imported industrial raw materials and Western medicines. Nina's father worked for a British uh, chemical company and the families knew each other uh, as a uh, result. They knew each other and as a result, Teddy and Nina were, were childhood friends. Uh, they grew up in wartime, so when uh, Japan invaded China, you know, the occupation of Shanghai, they grew up uh, during that, uh, uh, as well as when the communists uh, declared China a People's Republic in 1949. And Teddy's father at that point made a decision to send uh, Teddy to Hong Kong because he felt like the communist revolution wasn't a good thing for the rich people. So Teddy were among, uh, you know, among the hundreds of thousands of people leaving Shanghai as refugees and uh, many people's target was uh, target of destination was Hong Kong and that's where uh, Teddy Wang ended up uh, as well it felt like a land of land of opportunity versus what Shanghai was now turning into and later in 1955 Nina's family sent their youngest to stay with uh, the Wang family so they remained uh, connected and supportive of each other and at uh, that point as they were um, uh, as they were in uh, adult age, uh, they married. Uh, they married on her 18th birthday, specifically. And uh, Teddy's father provided him with some seed money to go into business in Hong Kong, and he started uh, China Chem with that seed money. As, uh, as we said, they started out as a company manufacturing chemical product products, including agricultural fertilizers. And as discussed, they moved. They took that capital and went into property development instead, where the significant fortune of the company and Teddy's and Nina's fortune it was made via that step. 
because people were coming into Hong Kong steadily at this uh, point, and that opened up opportunities in terms of uh, the demand for properties and housing. And by the 1970s, property development was uh, China Chem's uh, main focus, and uh, therefore the profitability was high and success uh, and success uh, was achieved. And that made Teddy a target. And in 1983, that happened. And he and he might have been one of the like first high-profile businessmen to be abducted. Uh, but uh, around the time of his first kidnapping, uh, other wealthy elite had been targeted as well because uh, it was public that Nina Wang had paid the ransom money to her kidnappers. So even though it was recovered, that surely encouraged criminals to hatch a plan of their own that could potentially uh, succeed. So it, it's it's that dangerous uh, a ripple effect, I suppose. So after the kidnapping, Teddy resumed his daily routines uh, despite the peril he had been in. Drove himself to work every day, same route and the same car. He did hire protection though, bodyguards, uh, but uh, not when he was driving. He wanted to do that himself. He felt safe enough because he had bodyguard elsewhere, bodyguards elsewhere. So he felt safe enough to maintain the same routine of driving himself and uh, perhaps felt like that that's my alone time that, and it's my safe alone time i don't need protection but cut to april 1990 and teddy was driving himself home after being at the gym and it was soon evident that he was being tailed by a motorcycle and a short while later two vehicles blocked the road and the kidnappers aggressively got teddy out of the car kind of more violently than last time and in that swift getaway, the kidnappers hit another car and a witness reported to police that multiple men in a Mercedes-Benz had hit his car. So it wasn't as smooth of an operation as in 1983 where no witnesses saw the abduction. Nina Wang was home and when an hour had passed after Teddy was supposed to be home, she got worried. But she didn't call the police immediately. Uh, one of the interview subjects in the film, Steve Wickers, he was a Hong Kong police uh, kidnapping specialist. Uh, he got wind of uh, this this report uh, that uh, a witness had uh, seen, uh, had uh, his or her car hit. So they were kind of, there were there were concerns triggered within the team. Uh, they started to put some pieces together that this um, there might be something more here. Uh, Wickers had an established track record having solved 28 kidnapping cases prior to this one he kind of knew what to look for even if he was looking at vague stuff it was decided that nina wang needed to be contacted and at the same time kidnappers were reaching out to pursue dialogue they were delivering their demands as per um, the last time uh, not just to nina directly but to relatives of the wang family and even china cam employees as well so they, they were thrown out a big net and they were aggressive calls, Joshua. That there were threats of violence towards Teddy if demands were not uh, met, and so forth. So uh, again, bank t- details were submitted where ransom money would be sent, uh, and uh, an amount uh, that was much higher in 1983 was um, sent and demanded. And this time, we're talking 60 million US dollars. They tried to keep the case out of the media to avoid a frenzy. Now that this had happened twice. So uh, calls to Nina were monitored by the police in order to gather intelligence. Uh, the calls were coming in all from all over China. And Vickers established that uh, a cooperation across the border was needed. Uh, so he placed uh, uh, operators in telephone exchanges in mainland China. Uh, so by, by being present more directly as the calls came in, this allowed for the team to build a picture of, picture of who the callers were. But time was an issue though as it surely is in kidnapping cases in general. And uh, 
in Nina's eyes, uh, things weren't pro progressing fast enough, and she feared for Teddy's life, and she wanted to pay the ransom money once again. And against the advice of the police, ultimately, you know, it was her call. They can't uh, order her to not uh, pay ransom money. But she did agree to only pay half the ransom at first. And uh, she did follow the advice and structure set by Steve Vickers because they set up to pay the money in 13 different currencies in order to slow down the clearing process. And uh, the, inve the investigation therefore tried to gain time to catch up and zero in on uh, on the kidnappers by having the, the money be slowly processed, I suppose. Uh, and uh, at that time in the early 90s, uh, electronic banking wasn't uh, terribly advanced. Yes, and uh, what uh, Vickers and his team did, they placed uh, people at every withdrawal machine. And these were linked up to 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 banks in order to detect if the designated uh, account was being accessed. So with a looming $30 million, uh, $30 million US, half the ransom money, the police counted on the kidnappers not resisting temptation to access some of the money. And uh, they had monitored a couple of transactions and a picture started to form where the kidnappers were operating from. Surveillance uh, agents were out there on the streets. They had missed a couple of withdrawals but were present at, uh, at one withdrawal where they saw one of the perpetrators accessing a monitored account via an ATM machine. So they they could uh, properly spot it. And as this was going on, media started to get a sense that something was up at uh, China Chem. Reporters started making inquiries about why Teddy was not as prolific as usual. He, you know, he might not have wanted to be super prolific, but the media probably knew that to expect something to see and hear from him in, him in some shape or form in public. So uh, Nina had a cover story. She said that Teddy was only he's on a business trip outside of Hong Kong, and uh, that aroused suspicion, if I understood this correctly, because they weren't very forthcoming. Normally, they weren't very transparent normally, saying even things like that, Joshua. So reporters started to think, this is suspicious that uh, we know that, that we got that information that is on a business trip. That triggered uh, the media. There were also leaks that uh, aided the media's ability to put together a picture as well. You know, be, being uh, being Teddy Wang, being Nina Wang, being China Cam, being very public, this would be interesting in the eyes of the public. And therefore, media started to... Uh, to trickle out uh, uh, a couple of stories there. So this time, Joshua, this one wasn't happening outside of... Uh, uh, like, like, this wasn't internalized anymore. This was happening in public, public view. So the police continued to focus on uh, the kidnappers, though they couldn't go too fast, they couldn't go too slow, they needed to collect data and intel on their whereabouts as fast as possible. Uh, uh, the, sus uh, the suspect from the ATM revealed a connection to Taiwan, though. And a former Taiwanese intelligence agent called Chen Chi Yun. I, I don't have this on authority, but it seems like because of his involvement that we're going to talk of, that seemed to be Ken Cheng's role in crime story to a degree. It seems like they, you know, they, that's the corrupt aspect, the, the inside aspect to the kidnapping as it's depicted in crime story. So I'm thinking that that acted as an inspiration to craft uh, Kent Cheng's role in, in Crime Story. Might be wrong, but uh, that, that immediately sort of jumped out at me in that yeah. regard. 
so the Hong Kong police were able to connect the fact that the kidnappers, uh, according Nina, were also placing calls to this person, Chen Chi Yun. Uh, he was promptly connected to um, to the money laundering uh, people involved in this, i.e., the persons who would check the ATM machines and further and uh, and further people in the chain were also now identified and targeted and that proved to be enough to conduct a series of raids and all the Hong Kong suspects were arrested and this was going on as a team was on the ground in Taiwan which is depicted in crime story it, uh, it's a, uh, it's set in Taiwan and uh, a raid on a hotel room in Taipei resulted in the arrest of Chen Chi Yun this former intelligence uh, uh, agent and uh, further persons uh, were also arrested that were in the middle of packing up the money sent from Nina Wang to Taiwan so they obviously got uh, to uh, extract some of the ransom money from uh, from the banks and all of that so they, they so they were sealing uh, sealing up stacks of money in uh, uh, watertight boxes and uh, boxes and they were likely going to flee on a boat and uh, going go from Taiwan to wherever they were trying to go so the money in question amounted to about 95% of the ransom money Nina Wang sent in different currencies. That still left the question. Where is Teddy Wang? Where was he being held? And this is where the story doesn't have the same resolution as the first kidnapping. So through interrogation and noticing where the kidnappers were in their process, i.e. packing money, getting ready to leave, it became apparent Teddy Wang was likely no longer alive. Uh, interrogations revealed uh, the kidnappers had drugged Teddy with uh, with a soft drink. Uh, and when he passed out, he was tied up and wrapped up, taken to uh, to a harbor onto a sampan boat, and he was then transferred to a fishing boat uh, that was headed headed out to the South China Sea, where he was presumably dumped overboard. Uh, again, Vickers uh, from the from the documentary, one of the interview subjects, personally believes, having assessed the case in retrospect, that the plan was always that Teddy wasn't going to come back. But but what exactly happened, you know, at the point in the drama we're at now, you know, all the details, 100% of the details, we will never be able to form a full picture, even if quite a great picture is out there, because a body was never recovered. And there are theories that, uh, that uh, Teddy Wang uh, died this way based on what the kidnappers disclosed to the police. You know, that's the angle. It's believable enough. But uh, some theories are out there saying that they could have been paid uh, to agree to stick with this story for whatever reason, you know, how it happened, where, when. So the only angle they had was the kidnapper's angle. Uh, uh, but uh, what they were saying is that uh, after taking off in the fishing boat, uh, they were approached by mainland Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese naval vessel and Teddy was dumped overboard in a panic. I have no problem believing this story, to be honest, uh, Joshua. It doesn't seem like this uh, ludicrous, uh, overly complicated fantasy or anything. I think that everything, every step of the way showed that these kidnappers, they weren't even as knowledgeable or on the money as the first set of kidnappers. So the fact that they would get spooked by a fishing, like a, a naval vessel or what have you, you know, kind of seems fitting with everything else that happened. And in Crime Story, he does survive. We, I don't remember the story right now in terms of if uh, this was part of the editing process, narrative choices where, where Kirk and Jackie uh, did, didn't agree or anything. But uh, it's haunting the way he's dumped overboard in Crime Story. But mm -hmm. it's kind of clunky 
when we see uh, that he's all right uh, and uh, he's been dragged out of the sea and uh, it's now a sort of secret that this has happened because Jackie Burns uh, the case file and something like that. I, I love crime story, but it's the ending that kind of drags it down because um, yeah. it's been a dark film. It does. Uh, it, it would. It would have been okay to even speculate, in my opinion, that he probably died. You know. So Nina Wang couldn't accept personally because it's a great loss that this was the conclusion that. Uh, this definitely happened and uh, she insisted that Teddy was still alive uh, in the eyes of the police even if Teddy's body ne- was never recovered the case was solved it was closed uh, Vickers backed off the case in order to let the justice system deal with the arrested parties uh, trial proceedings uh, lasted years it was well covered in the media convictions were handed down more details emerged but again a full picture looked like it's, it was elusive at this point including Teddy Wang's final outcome and uh, the case was, again, in the public eye, the possible outcome was being discussed. Um, but so was Nina's refusal to admit or commit to the fact that Teddy had uh, died and perished in the sea. And she apparently kept saying, no, no he's on a trip. He will be back. And uh, that's that's an effect of loss, I suppose, of being so personally involved. Um, it's not naive. I just think that that's, um, that, that that's a difficult process to digest rather than just turn like that yeah okay fine so uh she she's stuck uh she's stuck to that so in the aftermath you know in the years to come nina wang's public profile also took a distinctive turn after we have talked about this couple being uh, rather reclusive they didn't want to be all uh, all public all the time and even newspapers all the time but that that took an uh, took a turn as um she was certainly not young, but without Teddy by her side, she started to adopt this physical appearance of often doing her hair in a pigtails style, which, as the interview said in the documentary, that made her stand out in the crowd. And she wore, she wore short skirts, and local media na- nicknamed her Little Sweetie, based on this new public persona. She looked like, like, like almost like a particular Japanese manga or anime character, despite being this uh, wife of a business tycoon and a businesswoman in her own right. But she actively encouraged this comparison. She uh, she latched onto this. and uh, uh, But she took charge of uh, China Cam and its profitable real estate business um, and, and didn't abandon this look. You know, she was a billionaire CEO walking around and looking like a schoolgirl. That's a public profile that I'm sure was discussed and uh, loved that or maybe some thought it was very, very clever. Very, very brave, who knows? But because the empire flourished under her leadership during the 90s, uh, where the property market continued to boom, and she was a key advisor to the mainland on Hong Kong affairs in the lead-up to the 1997 handover. But the chapter of Teddy Wang wasn't humbly closed, almost. There was a distinct aftermath uh, surrounding um, the push to have Teddy declared legally dead. Driving this uh, this, uh, decision, this change of status, was his father and Nina's father-in-law. And uh, Teddy was officially declared uh, deceased by the Hong Kong High Court in 1999 at the request of his father. And this then triggered the battle of his will. Because uh, when money is involved, these things last for decades. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, The Wong elder had a will signed by Teddy, making his father the sole beneficiary. But Nina was in possession of a second will, signed in March 1990, a month before Teddy was uh, kidnapped, saying that uh, Nina is the sole beneficiary. And the dispute over the will, its authenticity, uh, reached trial in 2001, 
and this uh, lasted a record 172 days. And then, nah, uh, 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 nah, uh, 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 it's one of those like it's it will, it will go on forever, like uh, uh, these things. Um, and uh, public, it surely was as well. Uh, ultimately, the courts ruled in favor of Teddy's father, and uh, her will was declared a forgery. She appealed and lost again in 2004, and was shortly thereafter indicted on charges of forgery. And she was released on bail set to the tune of $2 million US, so no kidding around there. Uh, the Court of Final Appeal would hear the case, which was Nina's last-ditch effort to have her will uh, declared uh, authentic. And Chatter was suggesting that she really had no chance. But in September 2001, seven years into this legal battle, the, ju- the judges of the Court uh, of Final Appeal... And by the way, uh, Teddy's father was no... No, not a young man, obviously. So, so he he was going through this hardcore as well. But the court of final appeal deemed the 1990 will of Nina's to be genuine. And at this time, she was reportedly ill, though, and he she had been receiving treatment for cancer in America since uh, the year before 2004. And she then passed away in April 2007, aged 69, less than 18 months after winning the case of the supposedly forged will now deemed. Uh, Authentic, so I guess the story is over. No, it's not. Of course, it's not. And now, now it just gets silly. Uh, to, to be honest, or rather, a lot more bizarre. So Teddy is legally declared dead, and Nina Wang has passed away. But uh, shortly after her funeral, three conflicting wills emerged to the astonishment of those following the case and her life. Like, if, uh, who is going to be the beneficiary? in terms of her wealth and the company and all of that so same story was repeated like which is the genuine will who gets the money and the parties involved this time were china cam the china cam charitable foundation members of nina wang's family and a feng shui master called tony chan who claimed nina and him were secret lovers each claiming they totes have a genuine will claiming they are the sole beneficiary of her estate no, this happens. Con men and con women coming out of the woodwork. Uh-huh. Um, this was, as expected, a prolonged legal battle as well. We're almost up to the current timeline, to be honest. But we, we've been at this now. Ni- 1983 up to uh, uh, up to 2010, uh, when the Hong Kong High Court awarded Nina Wang's estate to her family's uh, China Chem Charitable Foundation, which sounds like the logical thing to do. It was concluded that the signature of Nina's on Tony Chan's will was a forgery. I could have called that, <laughs> like, as soon as he appeared. Like, ah, thank you, Master here. Uh, totes real. Uh, I got it. Give it to me. <laughs> uh, he never got the chance to appear because uh, he was brought in for questioning about the forgery. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison in 2013 for said forgery, but re- was released in 2021. So, yeah, we're in, we're in 2023 now. So this story has lasted. Uh, but he was released uh, a bit earlier for good behavior. He'd never pleaded guilty and maintained his innocence throughout the years. So again, this uh, we, we, we've been talking about this great story that was made into quite a great Jackie Chan film. But in the end, Joshua, we circle back to the fact that we're talking about a shitty Category 3 film about the kidnapping. This is what we do on this show. Hell yeah. But it is a riveting story for all its uh, dramatic uh, content and uh, psychological battles she probably had in her having lost her husband. And then the tail end, it becomes a farce. Even if a doctor said, like, how could this happen again? We've had this this tugging back and forth in terms of her will, and now more shit is happening. Like, you can't make this up, dude. 
I know. And then and then poor Tony Chan goes to jail when he is the true beneficiary of Nina's mind. I'm not saying a Feng Shui master is in, indicative of like uh, you're a charlatan or like this uh, fraud or anything, but it just sounded like, uh, yeah, hi, um, <laughs> Feng Shui master here. Sup? Um, I, uh, yeah, we were lovers and stuff, and uh, here's her signature, so um, uh, pay up. I'll, I'll take it in, uh, I'll, I'll take it uh, right here in, uh, in my hand, right here. <laughs> you know, after seeing what happened with Tony, I'm just glad that I never came out with my version of Nina Wang's will and testament. Well, which... uh, have I got news for you, Joshua? What? Um, I, I've got <laughs> no, you bastard, it's all me, damn it. Like, never mind that the signature has like an M that is crossed out because I kind of, I mean, Nina misspelled her name a little bit. So it's like, it says like Mina, but then the M is crossed out and then it says Nina in like childish hieroglyphs. But um, mine's completely in English as well. You know, she was going through an English phase. It reminds me of that um, scene in Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson is... uh, they're gonna have a barbecue but they need a permit to uh, have a barbecue in the park and he brings a permit i have a permit and all it says on the permit is i can do what i want (laughs) like uh, it's that easy so i have a permit kidnap of what i mean let's circle back to crime story i mean we, we sprinkled your, your opinion i think a little bit but uh you know in terms of a jackie chan film do you think it looks good on him in 1993 to adopt that serious persona and not have it to uh, have it be a gimmicky action piece like a uh, does crime story work for you uh, still yes it has action but it doesn't have like a uh, scheduled set pieces necessarily yeah, you know, it's definitely not the silly Jackie Chan of the era and everything like that. But, you know, even though it and it's well known for being like this is, you know, Jackie going serious, you know, it's it's still very much a product of that era within his you know catalog. It still, you know, has some pretty intense action set pieces and that definitely helps, you know, make it more watchable and I, I say that as if it's a bad movie it's not it's a really good movie actually um i do think that the especially like i think like this most recent outing i watched uh it's subtitled previously like watching it dubbed i think probably hurt my enjoyment of the film because yeah and and that version of it always just i don't know i, I need to go back i guess and watch it as well but I remember my first experience with the film being like so pissed off because of Kent Chang. Like, like Jackie came off as being dumber, I think, to me. Like, you know, how do you not know that this guy's a piece of shit, you know? And uh, but watching it, this most recent, watching the subtitled version, the original, and I didn't really get as much of that. There's still a few scenes where I feel like they let Kent Chang be too blatant of a bad guy and like the only person around like noticing is Jackie Chan. Like there's this whole sequence where they have uh, one of the bad guys, one of the like kidnappers or like someone involved in it. And Kent Chang like walks up to him and he he, like comes rushing to the scene when he hears that they've caught this guy. And uh, he's like, you know, he's in in a chair and he's like handcuffed and Kent Chang walks up and uh, basically tries well first i don't think he tries to kill him first he's like you need to see a doctor what what did you say and the guy's like yeah yeah yeah, i need to see a doctor and he's like well i guess i'll take him to the doctor myself alone 
without anybody there to you know watch after me since he's my informant and I have a history with him. And Jackie's the only one like, I don't know about this, guys. This uh, no, no, no. It's on the up and up. It's kind of you know it's parts like that kind of hurt it for me. But man, is he good, Ken Cheng. I mean, that that he he's an excellent character actor, regardless. But he, I think he uses his size to his, his advantage. And I'm not saying that oh, he fights J- Jackie Chan and he's fat and heavy, so therefore Jackie Chan will be flattened. No, it's it's something about he's quite intimidating, and size helps. Obviously, acting skill is uh, off the chart. He's really good in the film, and uh, he, he he gets to do naughty stuff with uh, Christine mm, in an elevator. Oh yeah, so. woof woof. <laughs> I tend to agree with all of that. Uh, I I find it uh, quite um, quite involving, and uh, I don't remember as such a lot of the stunts as such. I'm, I'm more in tune with the quite extensive um, fire stunts and explosions, heavy ending, which is quite a piece. Um, it, it looks responsibly made, mind you, but it looks quite dangerous as well. There's a, a bit where Kent Chang like they might they, it might have been some tricky editing I'm not sure but like Kent Chang standing on this floor and you know the building's falling apart and there's fire everywhere and he like falls through the hole like there's like a hole develops in the ground underneath him because everything's falling apart and he falls really quickly and then like this gust of like flames come shooting out the hole and i'm like it, it must have been tricky editing because it just seems way too dangerous but then again it's hong kong 1993 so you, you don't really know but uh but yeah it's a well-made film and uh very much feels like a kirk wong film a lot of the time they did disagree on quite a few things um but uh ultimately i, I like it for jackie's serious take he's a um uh, in terms of uh, acting uh, dramatically and all of that and uh, i like it as a kirk wong film as uh, well um, very much so so kidnap of wong chuck fei it's a co-written wong jing joint released in the wake of uh, crime story probably not a great review certainly not a great uh, uh, box office so what is it then i mean it it's i had forgotten that it's mostly a fictionalized account of two kidnappings of a very shitty businessman, played by Paul Chun Poi. Terrific character actor. I don't know if you remember him specifically from stuff. He's a, fa- he's a fantastic character actor. You can see him in Wild Search, uh, Ringo Lam's film. Uh, he's also in um, in many of Derek Yee's films because they're related. So he's a, he can act in a warm fashion as well. Uh, but just a terrific character actor. And uh, he can play an asshole with the best of them. But he's the one who plays with Teddy Wang of this uh, this film uh, so Wong Jing went to work depicting and fictionalizing two kidnappings that would evoke this case and do evoke this case so how is it then well not great actually not very <laughs> very, very good at all actually I'm not I'm not gonna completely shit on it, it it's uh, you know you know I'll come to that it's a movie of two halves and the yeah. second half gets better, but yes, l- yes. low budget and uninvolving mostly. Fictionalized account of Teddy Wang's two kidnappings. Film looks uninvolving flat. is the word. Yeah, yeah. Film looks flat, not particularly engaging. As I said, the only piece of category free stuff concerns dialogue. That's censored dialogue. I, 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 I want to stop again. I don't know why 
they couldn't stick to regular sort of soft beep or beep, but they always yeah. needed to have a little crackle on the soundtrack. <laughs> like, beep! And I was reminded of the episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when they're on Family Feud, I think. Yeah. And the Glenn Howerton's character is reacting to them. It wasn't, I don't think it was like, I don't think they said Family Feud. I think it was Family Fight, maybe. Sure, sure. So, but obviously, it evokes a real talk show. And th- that lo- loud buzzer that Glenn's character is reacting to, <laughs> kind of louder, kind of loud. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh, like the censored dialogue is so, that beeping and the crackling is so loud whenever it happens. It always happened that way in these films, uh, technically. So the sole piece of category free stuff concerns lewd dialogue, swearing. Can I see dragons? Exactly. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we're we're, uh, we're 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 laughing, but no one else understands why. Yeah, no. Uh, so we're going to cover the sole scene that that is category free rated, but some of it is for dialogue. Second half, essentially second VCD. That's the only way we can see this. Gets a little bit more speedy as the chase in Taiwan for the kidnappers is focused on. Uh, but overall, I think it's a kind of tame and dull exercise. Not exciting, not tense, not disturbing or anything. And just, by the and, books. And, and, by the books and just dies a quick death by the end, thanks to a choice that I want to discuss. So, I didn't remember. No, it, it, this doesn't match with the documentary at all. So, is there any point of doing this episode? It, it, it's not the same, but obviously, after a while, you realize that they're focusing on two kidnappings and no one is going to mistake this for any other case than the Teddy Wang case and we certainly see uh, uh, the unseen Nina Wang of this film uh, on her way to the bank and the police are out there in terms of uh, monitoring the uh, payment process and there's a loose handheld camera following the action in cramped rooms so it's not a glamorous operation this uh, but the real life stakes here so the audiovisual language for all of this is okay. And mid-operation, the f- first and only category three stuffs happens. As Kent Cheng's character, who is in charge, decides to take a little breather, Joshua. So what does he do? And again, this movie has no reason to be category three other than what Joshua, in the scene that Joshua is going to explain to you now. White on white subtitles kind of hurts things a lot during the VCD. Essentially, he seems to go to a massage parlor. He goes there and he's laying down, getting ready for his massage. And uh, a not attractive lady, that's how I'll say it, says, Oh, I know what you need, honey. You need oral sex. You know, you know the pressures of work, you know, as real life uh, stakes or yes. out and about. Let's uh, let's uh, take a breather and unwind a little bit here. Well, with the ugly lady, uh, essentially, Kent Chang's like, "Oh no, no, I can't. I'm a, I'm an honest man. I'm a police officer. You know, <laughs> I couldn't possibly do something like that." And so the ugly lady's like, "All right, you know, suit yourself. You know." So she, she leaves the room, and then of course, a gorgeous young woman walks in the room, and she's going to an like an 80 year old man who for some reason i guess they share they'd co they co-room these uh you know massage the room i should say is really just an apartment this is not like a uh setup looking like a massage parlor so uh 
she goes in the room and the you know the eighty year old man's like, Oh yeah, all right, darling, come over here and then Kent Chang jumps up. No, 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 uh, you know, I, I changed my mind. I, I need the full, you know, service treatment. And so he, he grabs the woman from the eighty year old man and takes him takes her over there. And, you know, sure enough, here comes oral sex on Kent Chang. Who offers him a rim job? Is that her or the ugly her, lady? Her. Okay. Wait. Yeah, yeah, I said it, listeners. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> she says wait or was it the ugly one one of them says uh i could even could look even lick your anus Ugh. and oh i think it's the pretty girl because he, he tells her you know something like oh where did you learn to talk like this young lady da, da, da. I, I, I'm, I'm not king shimmy by the way it's because like i i didn't need to read that during this film necessarily <laughs> I didn't, didn't need to you know i don't know you know not gonna talk bad about Kent, but uh, no, I d- didn't need to think of that picture in my head. Kent ends up having the true category three overreaction to sex, as one expects. And well, can I just go back to the following? What I I don't know of many things in life, and I again, I'm not here to kink shame or like look down on pleasures. She starts oral sex by swigging tea. Tea, yeah. And then starts to assume her oral sex. I'm, I was thinking, one, that sounds unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> and two, I know this, your saliva and your mouth it, it will be warm enough. Right. For when the pleasurable parts interact. But I guess he's had so many of these things. So he needs to up the game or they think that customers out there in Hong Kong needs this treatment because the the, the regular one not not the old like the old the old-fashioned one that, that's 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 so 80s we, we do it with tea in, in 1993 so i just thought like unpleasant not needed <laughs> well speaking of unneeded this entire sequence is completely <laughs> unneeded but um it's it's wong jing going typey typey yep yep this will make our movie category free this will this will be crime story money this is crime story money in the bank motherfuckers <laughs> we got ken Chang and we've got him getting a blowjob woo so but he enjoys it right Joshua. yeah so uh, to, to you know outlandish and comedic effect yes he's squirming he's oh oh <laughs> like the entire time he, he someone calls him on his police phone because something is happening in real life the initial kidnapping is happening and so he goes and he, he's reaching for his phone and he grabs a banana Whoa, and he puts it to his ear waka waka he's like hello hello i'm the police officer oh wait <laughs> no i've got a banana <laughs> and uh he puts the banana down picks up the phone takes the real phone call and then squishes a banana as he comes and then and of his course his face turns red like someone is strangling him <laughs> so <laughs> ken cheng is acting the heck out of this let me see your acting show me he's he's oh my god is he selling it and then uh of course we have to get the shot you know if if we weren't category three yet in 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 honesty i I don't think we would have been no no not until what you're gonna tell us to be right now (laughs) territory and then of course we get a close-up shot of our young lady who she seems to be trying to swallow the ejaculate and it's not and I guess she's unable to, probably. I don't know if it's an insult to Ken Chang. I don't know. But, uh, of course, she spits it out, you know, all over her mouth. 
yeah. and what area to wipes it away. No it shaming. It... I just didn't need to see that. <laughs> well, it's it's this is not a sex movie, and no, it's, it's un- not. It's not necessary. You know, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It like it establishes this as a funny sex comedy. And then what follows is a mostly unfunny procedural uh, kidnapping film. Fucking weird is that? <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, maybe the, the censored language was so... The, the, the uncensored language was quite crude, so that would have been a Category 3 thing, and certainly the censored language would have uh, made the I was the thinking film. the anus thing. Like when she was talking about that, I was like, well, that's probably what seals it. But then the cum scene came out. So, so that that's all she wrote in terms of what, what makes this category three classify. Well, that uh, as uh, as as goofy of a scene it is. Uh, no crazy violence. No nothing. No, I mean the closer we we get is when um, either a civilian or a cop is driven over by the van they're trying to stop the stop in in bloody fashion. So, I I held my uh, I sort of was hopeful that there would be some cool stunts. But that's the extent of that uh, sort of distressing violence, I suppose. So. Crime story had worse violence, like uh, the sequence where the police officers ran over in that, and Jackie picks him up, and his head is like gushing blood, and she has to take him to the uh, the hospital or whatever. So that that was more violent. So what happens here is they 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 find our Teddy Paul Chun in in a box, you know, a refrigerator, the, yeah. and uh, and solves the first kidnapping right there on the streets yep. in Hong Kong. Ken Cheng is the one to do it. Exactly. So we, it all all's well ends well and you realize at this point that they're not following the documented crime because that's their choice to not do so but there's still no mistake in that uh, as, especially as we get to know our Teddy Wang that this is based on him. Totally based on him. There's no chance in hell that they're looking some at some other businessman. Uh, because they they establish him as just a dick, dick. just a full on dick. Like he obviously he doesn't. He deserved pay. it, you know. You know this is no challenge for Paul Chimpoy, but he is actually quite good at playing assholes like this. Yeah. He's really good at that. So out of all performers, it's those two veterans that are okay. Ken Cheng and Paul Chun. So, so we we see stuff at the building sites where he's arguing for why he shouldn't pay people. He's not paying his uh, servant persons either in his house. Uh, hasn't paid salary for a couple of months. Just being a dick for the sake of it. So, I suppose that that's a good thing for the movie that there's no doubt that uh, he's rich and he doesn't have a care in the world. And um, no wonder he's. A, He's a target for kidnappers, but no wonder he becomes a target because he enrages key characters in this narrative to the degree that, oh, we're going to kidnap him. Uh, so it's it's not greatly directed, but at least we there's no mistake in that uh, Teddy is uh, completely unsympathetic. Not comedically so, though, I thought, which is why I thought Paul Chun's performance was okay. The, the, the contrast to all of this is that everyone kind of knows he is a dick, but Officer Chung, that Ken Cheng plays, he thinks he's found a friend for a little while. He, he himself is revered. He's trustworthy. He's respected as a superior, a veteran, even though he seems like a slob and, and scruffy. So uh, it's that turn the movie's going to take, no, 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 not like uh, 
very elegant filmmaking necessarily, but it's that turn it's going to take where Officer Chung, it becomes like Officer Chung versus Teddy Wang because uh, it's clear that um, he's not going to be thankful for a lot of the film. He's going to be a dick quite uh, quite soon and uh, it's going to be quite evident why he deserves a second kidnapping in the case of this film. The movie has a second comedic sequence. Not a category free comedic sequence. Wong Jing uh, has written that you should laugh at the homosexuals. Because there's a scene here where a taxi driver spots this drunken conversation between uh, Ken Cheng and uh, one of his uh, uh, partners, his uh, colleagues. Where they sit there and uh, have their arms around each other. And at one point Ken Cheng stands up and he's gonna pee. And the guy sits down in front of him for whatever reason. And the taxi driver looks at. Oh my god. What kind of behavior is that? Ah, the taxi driver thinks he has spotted gay people in the wild. Oh Wong Jing. The hilarity. <laughs> Let, like, like the movie would be sold as. You'll gasp. You'll laugh. You'll cry. And you'll lo- and you'll laugh at the perceived homosexuals in this film. Come and see, come and see our movie. It's not even like a, a really well put together. Like I think of of a similar scene. I think of I guess, uh, is it Austin Powers? Maybe do you remember? There's a sequence in that where which one? Uh, Austin. I think it's the first one, maybe where he's in like a tent and it's got you know lighting and like you have people watching it and he's bent over searching for something and his assistant like all you can see is the silhouette right and it looks like he's nude bent over and it looks like the his girlfriend or whatever is like pulling things out of her out of his ass you know done much much better than this this is like he's he's with the his son correct it might have been his son yeah yeah i think it's his son and he's like why don't you love me dad oh well i'll show you i love you and give you a kiss and they have like you know a father son little kiss, and then uh, he you never did things like you know never never played piggyback with me, and so his son's going to get on him like a piggyback, but it's you know we all know what a piggyback looks like you know you jump on you put your arms around somebody's shoulders you know around their neck essentially, and you jump on the top part of their back. Well, in this he's basically like grabbing from around the waist and trying to like. You know, get into a position that looks as much like humping as possible, and it's like you know, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It's not not funny. A because you know, it's stupid. But B because you're not even like setting up a scenario that could even look similar. You know, to like what you're trying to make you know joke about or whatever. Yeah, it's no surprise that this movie is going for a couple of different tones because it's Hong Kong film, circa 1993, but. Uh... When it falls flat like this, it really comes off poorly uh, for co-writer Wong Jing because that's all I see here. I don't don't see him particularly in the the procedural stuff. I think uh, he leaves that to the director and some of the other writers and Wong Jing is focusing on kind of uh, evening out uh, things and injecting things that have worked before or he perceives will work. The second sequence of uh, Goofy Stuff certainly does not. You know, not being terribly cinematic might might not be a problem for a movie necessarily. It could be gritty, nicely gritty, doing location shootings and being in uh, 
tight departments and no it, like and having no like distinct design necessarily that's not a problem to be on low budget uh, interiors and in uh, low budget exteriors but the movie really doesn't uh, feel gritty to me in terms of its look and its procedural and its drama it looks uh, it looks flat and cheap to be honest so it never it can never escape that so it was never a fetching thing for me to see the lives of these uh, people in these uh, normal environments it just looks uh, kind of like many of these apartments in these films even though there's no sex here so it, it, the movie isn't um, being elevated by its uh, real feel and look it's not poorly made at all like in terms of his like visual aesthetic or anything it's not it's not poorly done but it's just not gripping at all it's a lot of, it's a lot of stay it's a lot of staging with people standing around and saying their dialogue you know yeah. so it's not uh, this uh, exquisite uh, uh, like uh, shot list of uh, cool uh, ways to film dialogue or anything you know and it's not just because uh, crime story is uh so much more well preserved i don't think i think if you both films up next to each other you know uh, crime story looks like it was filmed 10 years after <laughs> you know uh kidnapped watching bay very much and uh, as much location work it uses it's also uh greater in budget and there's a lot of uh uh, complex interiors to elevate uh, its uh, scenarios and all of that uh, but but you know it's basically staged but also the, the kind of clunky and uh, tv melodrama enters the enters the fray to uh, echo the fact that we are supposed to sympathize with these uh, struggling people these poor people but at least to some dialogue that is just hilarious to be honest uh, because the 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 family here, the Kent uh, Cheng's characters, family and the son, they, they, it spirals downwards uh, for them. There's threats of loan sharks and uh, and being poor in general, and uh, it, it leads to these dramatic speeches about the lack of money, and it's all it's all uh, it's all Teddy Wang's fault and all of that. So, <laughs> and, and the dramatic music cues to go with that, and the the thing I loved that because there's a birthday scene when all these. Uh, these negative feelings are being expressed. And at one point they say, I couldn't even pay for the birthday cake. Oh, yeah. Like he had to loan money to pay for the birthday cake. Yeah, it's heartfelt. Of course that's heartfelt. But it's such a silly line. <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest, it's not a sad line about the economics of it all. Couldn't pay for the birthday cake. <laughs> like, like the loan sharks frets because they, they they put chains outside their apartment and then graffiti the walls and say that uh, these people are in debt or whatever. That's a greater threat. But uh, can I set up that? Essentially, what happens in the movie is Kent Kent Chang, you know, who rescues Wong Chuck Fei from his first kidnapping. He seems to be friends, or he believes that he's friends with Wong Chuck Fei, and that. He's overall a good guy, a rich guy, and he introduces his son to Wong Chek Fei and is promised like a you know a good job within his company, you know. So he's like set up his son with him, and oh yeah, everything seems great. Well, when Ken Cheng's son gets out there and starts working, he's on the job with you know all these you know workers who are just pissed off. They haven't been paid in you know weeks, and they're like you know I'm not going to keep working and to keep the job going, which is what his 
you know, Ken Shank's son's job is, he has to come up with the money somehow because he goes to Wong Chak Fei and begs him to pay his employees. And the guy's like, no, that's why I have you. You you tell them I'm not going to pay them and they need to just work through it and da da da. And they'll get paid whenever I finish this part of the construction process or whatever. And uh, he goes to the guys and they're all threatening to walk out. So he actually. I guess the first loan he gets through uh, Wong Chak Fei himself is like, well, you know, I'll give you this at such and such percentage and you can pay them yourself. And so he gets, you know, all these loan sharks sick don't him essentially from Wong Chak Fei. So it, it is really a strange thing to like take a kidnapping case like this where a, a man died and then to present a fictionalized version of it that essentially says he really deserved to die. You know, it's a, that's a gutsy move. As poor of a rep as Teddy Wang had, in the story, it never came off that he was this no, extroverted horrible. madman who at any point in the media or TV just... Like he wasn't this Rottweiler. It never, it never came off as that, as poor as his standards in the property development might have been. It is indeed notable that we get this angle to it as the movie you know switches sides literally like to the to vcd2 something decently happens at least there's a drive here to now because now enough's enough and ken chang's officer chung with their colleagues and um, and friends and even his son they decide to like 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 enough's enough if he could be kidnapped once he could he could be kidnapped twice so there, there's decent drive to vcd2 essentially there's a pretty good scene where where kent uh, cheng and his uh, his uh, crew are rehearsing the kidnapping and it goes badly you know they can't break the car window they can't grab the 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 guy who's playing uh, teddy wang for the exercise out of the car so they grab his suspenders his shoes his pants and it was actually kind of good slapstick to be honest yeah uh, and so, so all of a sudden, they, they obviously do go through with the second ki- kidnapping. There's some better narrative beats here. Uh, it, uh, apparently, if I understood correctly, like Wong Chak Fei has uh, a tracking device in his shoe by this point, and they catch that, like like a, a la Goldfinger uh, finger, right? And uh, so they get rid of that tracking device. They 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 probably knew of it because they're police officers. Maybe they recommended him to have a tracking device in his shoe in case this happened. And and then there are actually pretty decent detention field beats when they are actually uh, they have just kidnapped him. And then some policemen arrive, and uh, there's this uh, uh, confrontation where. Where the kidnappers, you know, Ken Cheng's characters, they, they they can't say they're cops, so they claim they're from China, they're a gang from China. But the police show up, and then Officer Chung is recognized, so they kind of start to defuse that situation, despite uh, having said that they are robbers from uh, China or whatever. So all of a sudden, it, it really doesn't matter that it's low budget or anything. All of a sudden, there, there's some decently uh, executed beats as the second kidnapping. And the transfer to Taiwan happens. All the establishing stuff is in the first half, and just the second, you know, the process of you know, you you're kind of done with all the BS, with all the this, all this 
stuff with the sun and everything like that, and it gets right down to the core of the issue. And it's like, once it does that, it, it kind of starts moving a little bit, you know? There's even, like, an interesting bit, like, right at the tail end of the film where they play with, you know, time and whatnot, like, where we're on the boat with uh, Wong Chuck Fei, and, you know, we see him break free from his restraints, and then the scene just seems to cut, which is not, it's kind of handled clumsily, but, you know, it cuts to, you know, the interrogation of one of the kidnappers who's caught, and it, it reveals, you know, Wong Chuck Fei, he reveals Wong Chuck Fei's ultimate demise or what have you. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny to be like this late in the movie and like all of a sudden now we're going to start playing with uh, conventions and, you know, actually do something interesting. But shit, I'll take it, you know. And, and, and all, all the stuff in Taiwan, I think it's uh, decently enough to follow i mean it's better than the first half so uh, that's why like i'm i'm positive about it that now now there's a little bit of drive to it granted francis mm, a very young francis mm, is this quirky police officer who's who's now you know the main in uh, uh, the man in charge of the investigation he's this sort of joking and smiling police officer but also he's on top of his investigation uh, he's kind of a uh, uh, manipulative uh, and uh, can snap into being serious as he talks to Nina Wang, who is played by, we haven't mentioned this, uh, Cheng Pei Pei from Come Drink With Me and Crouching yeah. Tiger Hidden Dragon plays our Nina Wang here in a couple of scenes. Not a great role for her, but she looks great. But and, and, uh, that's and a, a that's brief a... scene in the beginning of the film where we see Nina, well, whoever she is in this is not Nina, but the wife when we see the wife and Wong Chak Fei together she actually has pigtails you know kind of further cementing you know who this is really supposed to be but uh, she does not wear yeah right (laughs) a hammer over the head you know which is interesting this is 1993 maybe she had already pursued that public image in uh, like a year or two after Mm -hmm. uh, the second case you know yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, when I first saw her in the film, I saw, oh, the pigtails. This movie might be more like the real story, but, you know. Nope. <laughs> Neither film, Crime Story or this, really follows anywhere close to beat by beat of the real story. But, you know, it's funny. to. It's just interesting to see films in the same year that have such dramatically different turns from the real story and they go in such different directions you know? you know having said all of that it's 1993 court proceedings lasted for a couple of years maybe there still were some things that weren't public so they needed to be creative and fill in themselves to a degree even crime story but i, I can't say for sure how much was known precisely when these scripts were uh, written but uh, but i do enjoy the, the the second half a little bit better it's a little broad but the the decent interaction between francis and ken cheng you know francis playing with him trying to entrap him voicing suspicions following him to taiwan like i'm here you are here well look at that <laughs> it, it, it's 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 decent fun it's decent fun a little bit better joshua doesn't mean this movie transforms into anything notable anything but uh it's a decent ticking clock uh, scenario as they're trying to catch that withdrawal in Taiwan. So they do depict that, that they're keeping track electronically, these bank transactions. 
So the, the, they hit that, but uh, again, no like great increase in tension or anything. But uh, the beats are understandable. We understand very well that this is also a second fictionalized account of the kidnapping. And in this film's favor, it speculates, but at least it speculates uh, uh, and connects more to the real life possible outcome of Teddy Wang. Granted, it does it in the following clunky way. As Joshua said, there is uh, a clarification what happens on the boat with uh, uh, Wong Chak-Fei, who has now broken free, and he struggles with Kent Cheng's Officer Chung. They fall overboard, and that leads to a piece of stock footage. A stock footage of a shark, right? But not like stock footage pulled from a film element to sort of in, you know inject decently into the film elements no it's stock footage shot of a tv i don't know if you noticed that detail essentially to me i mean i noticed it back in the days so i made this note back in the day when we discussed crime story on the network it looks like they uh, turned on shark week and filmed a uh, filmed a piece of shark week on discovery and put it in the film <laughs> And then we see blood in the water and everyone yells, no, no, Officer Chung. And we should presume that uh, both of them, including our Teddy Wang, Wong Chuck Fei, died from, from a shock bite. Or you know, uh, drowned or shock bite, whatever. So at least, Joshua, it speculates what seems like the more rational thought and thing that happened. Because I didn't like what Crime Story did. I really didn't. Where he, li- where, where he lives. Where he defo lives. No speculation. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the the good thing about shooting you know, in both films that uh, are based on the same story, I guess, you know, when you kind of bullshit everything, you can kind of like bullshit the ending too, you know, and give a very definitive answer. Uh, you know, I mean, it's closer to the end than crime story was so that that's cool you know i mean i don't know where all the shark stuff what i mean why you know what's wrong with just them drugging the guy and then throwing him overboard you know what's wrong with that why not just go with what actually was said and that was what was so great about that crime story scene where where uh, actor law guying falls into the sea that shot is so haunting also because it looks difficult on the actor because he's tied up and he's going into the water. <laughs> uh, so I hope they had safety divers there for him. But but here it's uh, just uh, they don't have a sort of a, uh, a stunt team at the ready to depict much of a thing. It's just a little bit blood in the water, some close-ups of uh, struggling and then they're gone. And uh, then you get the filmed off a TV, one second shot of a shock go back to it uh, it's off a fucking tv it's so cheap <laughs> so and and then we we didn't get this translated into english but our friend paul fox explained that the end text that comes up at the end of the film talks about as expected we, we could have guessed this that there were arrests made convictions handed out but uh, the two persons uh, were presumed uh, missing and body parts were found uh, but they couldn't identify if uh, those uh, uh, body parts, presumably from uh, a shock attack or shock bite, uh, belong to Officer Chung or Wong Chak Fei. So we'll leave it open ended because in 1993 it kind of was all open ended. 
it's clunky it's not dramatic it's not like gasp inducing but uh, they they do this instead and i prefer it this way even though this film is kind of um, kind of uh, not hitting uh, hitting all the its marks and uh, all all the notes for for uh, uh, you know it's not an exciting procedural ending ending in this uh, tension filled uh, climax or anything so there it is what it is category 3 it did not need to be <laughs> so, but uh, but uh, but here we are uh, this is what we do this was the reason we did it because uh, it's got it, it, Joshua it's got to come it's got to come in it it's totally doable we'll do, like it's a Teddy Wang's kidnapping how could come fit doing it well let me show you don't, don't let me show you okay. <laughs> we got that uh, we got ass le- potential ass licking and banana phones <laughs> and uh, it's all good it's it's not necessary but it sure is interesting to watch and know of the fact that a little shitty low budget lo-fi low budget film came out in the wake of uh, the bigger film covering the big crime teddy wang exploitation the performances like you said i think i think these guys could sleep through uh something like this and come out the other side but yeah not terribly challenging for either ken cheng or paul chun to be honest um, right but i mean i think that they you know it was serviceable i think it's uh overall they produce something worthwhile, I guess. The whole movie itself as a whole, uh, you know, it's it's nothing that I don't think either one of us will be coming back to revisit anytime soon. But I think just the combination of watching both films plus the you know, documentary, the background information, knowing about this, and it's an interesting film experiment, I guess, you know, like, and that's the whole selling point mm. of all this. I mean, in, in 1993, you could get the low-budget projects off the ground. Yeah. And being timely is a very alluring thing mm-hmm. for filmmakers. Yeah, it was in the papers. Let's get it out there. <laughs> you know, we have we we only have this. We and we we can afford Ken Cheng and Paul Chun and Wong Jing. So let's get it out there. You know, shoot it in 15 days or whatever, and then release it in 30. And I'm sure it uh, was that fast, so it it doesn't surprise me at all that Kent, uh, this Kent left the the crime story like a uh, after party, and uh, he was on the set probably the next day. Hey guys, guess what I'm doing? <laughs> he was in Running Kill the same year as well, so he he had a wow. productive hell of a year. year. Yeah, hell of a year. A revered actor for all the good reasons, uh, but maybe not for this one necessarily. <laughs> no. Uh, so yeah, so as for abil- uh, ability, uh, uh, availability, uh, availability of uh, Wong, kidnap of Wong Chak Fei, uh, uh, by all it's a, it's a good experiment for an episode as well, but it's not a very available film by all accounts. This only got VHS, Laserdisc, and VCD releases from Maya, and neither had a letterbox transfer, which cut off some subtitles, not terribly so though, but uh, it felt a little cramped. Uh, but uh, we got the gist uh, throughout all of it. So maybe there's an HD version somewhere uh, in the online uh, stratosphere. But um, certainly th- this is all we have at our disposal of uh, disposal in terms of a kidnap of Wong Chuck face. So there it is. Uh, I was kind of surprised not even the laser disc was letterboxed. Sometimes that's what you got. VHS, VCD, yeah, widescreen. But uh, the luxurious viewing option. 
I the laser discs sometimes were letterboxed, but uh, but no, in this case, uh, let's crop this stupid shit and get it over with. Just put it out there. Move on to something else. For all your podcasts on Fire Network needs. Uh, Go to podcastonfire.com, our back catalog, check out our socials and uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and uh, stream us on Stitcher Radio, Spotify and wherever you find podcasts. And uh, let's stop the fucking and we'll be back because we have some more true life crimes film, true life crime films to cover. And I want to do some category free wuxia films. I don't think we've done a ton of those. So stick with us because this journey never ends so uh we're we're very thankful for you uh for you guys uh, being here with us and uh i'm thankful for you for you joshua for being here with me taking uh taking uh, this uh dive into um interesting experimentation but at least you got to watch a good documentary and a good jackie chan film <laughs> always always good to watch a good jackie chan film so uh, this is us signing off for this episode of uh, This Week in Sleaze and I've been Sleaze again. With me was the great Lord Joshua Regal and uh, the next time the phone calls, make sure to pick up the phone not the banana. <laughs> Hello, we'll banana phone, Hello. banana phone. Waka, waka. This is a fresh joke in 2023, right? <laughs> banana phone. You can actually buy a banana phone, I'm sure. Uh, oh, I'm sure. eBay, here we come. <laughs>